Welcome to the Earth Allies podcast, a podcast run by the team at Earthly Education. I'm Reese, And I'm Nicole. And as Earthly Education, we explore the climate and environmental issues, but more importantly, the solutions. We hope to educate and activate people worldwide, building a community along the way. Each episode, we'll discuss recent events, research and other issues. And we'll have special guests on the show, including experts, activists and more. We hope you enjoy. All right, welcome to another episode of Earth Allies, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. So, Reese and I have been super busy lately. So, Reese isn't here today, but I've got a super, super special guest with me instead. I have Aitan Salahi from the Planetary Health Collective. So, Aitan is a registered dietitian and has her master's in food and nutrition policies and programs. And this is just a snippet of her education and experience. She is also the founder of the Planetary Health Collective. So thank you so much for being with us today and for offering to share your insight in this space with us all. I'm so happy to be here and to meet you guys. Awesome. So good to have you here. So let's just get straight into it. So how did you get into nutrition and dietetics? And then how did that lead to ending up in this space of planetary health? Sure. Yeah. So I always, I do like to share this story because, um, I took a bit of an unconventional route and I'm always very encouraging of people exploring what their passions are and taking their own unconventional route and doing that fearlessly. So I actually am a bit of a career changer. Um, I started off studying neuroscience and psychology in my undergrad, and I worked in as a neuropharmacology researcher studying the mind gut connection. Um, at the Duke University Medical Center in North Carolina. And it was brilliant. I learned so much and I very quickly realized that I did not want to do cell bio research. (laughs) So I was like, let me try a different kind of research because I did, I really enjoy the pursuit um, and like trying to answer really complex questions. So I went on to then work in clinical research and diabetes management. Um, for a global portfolio, global study portfolio that looked at artificial pancreas systems for helping people with diabetes manage their blood glucose better. Um, so I stayed in that for five years, again, learned a huge amount um, and really credit a lot of like my professional development to that time in my life. But it took me five years to realize, okay, I don't want to do that kind of research either. Um, I will also add, though, that during that time, I was living in Los Angeles, and I was learning a lot more about the preventative role that food and nutrition can play in um, like longevity and overall health. So I started getting involved in uh, like local food, um, local food policy councils. So there's Los Angeles Food Policy Council started like an urban agriculture working group. So I started learning about um, foodways, local foodways in Los Angeles, indigenous foodways, and how to grow your own food in a cityscape and what that looks like. Um, And I just went down the rabbit hole deeper and deeper. I started uh, volunteering with a group called Food Forward, which is like a fruit, um, 
food gleaning efforts. So you go around neighborhoods where there's a bunch of fruit trees that are not being picked and you take that fresh fruit and you bring it over to like a food bank or something like that and make sure that that food is getting eaten and not wasted. So I was learning about, um, you know, food waste reduction efforts, um, food banking, what goes into that. And then I was also very much seeing this huge disparity in the accessibility of fresh foods in different pockets of Los Angeles, which has um, a, a very high proportion of individuals living in lower income settings um, without access to housing. So that... Uh, disparity is very real and very palpable. And I was seeing how food was playing into that and how that was a, a contributing risk factor for worsened health outcomes. Um, and so after five years of working in clinical research, I decided that I wanted to kind of reroute things and just go fully commit fully down the rabbit hole of food and nutrition in every aspect of it. So I relocated, moved across the country from California to Boston, Massachusetts where I did my master's in food policy and applied nutrition at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy. And that was really where I started learning how to connect the dots between human health, environmental health, and like culinary education. So I was learning about um, food policies that were supportive of local farmers, that were also increasing access to low, of lower income folks, access to like fresh local foods um, and improving their health outcomes and measuring all of that. So that was through the Healthy Incentives Program in Massachusetts. And um, that was really like when I started getting involved on the policy side of things. And I went on to learn more about the direct patient care portion. So we've got the policy piece, um, we've got the research piece, and then I just finished up my dietetic internship at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, um, where I specialized in gastrointestinal conditions or medical nutrition for GI conditions and using a plant-focused lens to um, get patients' results. So long answer to your question, but <laughs> it took me a while to get here. I'll tell you that all happened over 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely sounds like quite the journey. <laughs> yeah, <totally. laughs> but you've obviously ended up in a really cool place now. So whatever yeah. it takes, right? <laughs> totally. And I think it's also just about realizing that these issues, well, for me, my path really showed me that these issues are really not separate from each other. Um, like the, what launched me into learning about sustainability and anti-hunger was actually starting in a neuropharmacology lab, learning about mind-gut connection. So it's just not something that you would think right off the bat, but it really is a lesson that these are not siloed endeavors. They're all interconnected and, you know, go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Everything's pretty connected once you start looking into things a bit further. Yeah. Yeah. So as the founder of the Planetary Health Collective, what were your main thoughts, motivations, and feelings that led to the creation of this organization? Yeah. Uh, so during that time when I was in graduate school and I was learning about, you know, agricultural policy and anti-hunger policy in the United States and just what sustainable food systems really look like and what the definition of that is, I um, knew that I was going to be taking this next step to become a registered dietitian soon. And I really wanted to get connected with health professionals who were also 
cared about these issues and saw their role as being very important. Um, so I started kind of asking around in my community, are there dietitians or like chefs or, you know, like, I don't know, food policy professionals who were like interested in meeting in an intersectional space where we can talk about these things and work together to, um, elevate each other's work and to make sure that we're working collaboratively and non-redundantly um, because this is a time pressured issue as we all know. So we need to be working more efficiently. Right. So the more I asked around, the more I came to learn that this kind of a space didn't really exist yet. Um, and so one day out of pure frustration, I actually posted into like a big Facebook group of a bunch of like dietitians and chefs and all of that. And I was like, Hey, so where are the people who are really like worried about climate change, um, in our field? And like, where are you guys hanging out and where are you talking and whatever. And I was told like, I think, I don't know, I don't remember the number of responses, but there was a huge number of responses on this post and people were like, make the space, create it. Like we need it so much. So it was actually like a direct response. <laughs> people told me to make this group. So I may as like, okay, great. I wanted to do it, but I wanted, you know, I'm glad that I know this is something that you guys are gonna want to become engaged in. So um, I founded the Planetary Health Collective um, a few years back now. And in the beginning, it started off as basically just me, Bretta, and Mary <laughs> talking about um, Bretta Alstrom and Mary Purdy. I'll say their full names. Um, they're incredible. And they are my co-leads of the Planetary Health Collective, kind of just tackling how we're going to create this um, community. And that's how the PHC uh, was born. <laughs> awesome. It's good to hear how sometimes platforms like social media can actually result in something as cool as your organization now. Yeah. Sometimes good things can happen on social media, which is <laughs> rare, but sometimes good things, yes. Yeah, really cool. And it's interesting that sometimes you just need to ask and the demand is already there or like you just need to say one thing and everyone just needs to have heard it and then they're ready to act. So. Right. I, I think people are always looking for, like, people might have this idea of something that they want to participate in, but they might not have, know where the open door is, or that there is an open door to do those things. So that's actually part of not only the reason that PHC started and why we exist, but it's also one of the main things that we want to make sure that people um, nationally and internationally know that this community exists. And that it doesn't matter what your experience level is in sustainability, um, in climate change, in food systems. This is a welcoming and safe and supportive and inclusive identity affirming space where you can come and chat and learn side by side, shoulder to shoulder with other people who care about these issues and want to get involved and are sharing, actively sharing opportunities to do exactly that. Yeah, really cool stuff. Okay, so let's sort of get to basics. So how can our diet affect the environment and vice versa? Sure. So um, one thing that I like to start off by saying is, of course, we know that climate is very closely connected to the food system and that this connection goes both ways. So in other words, climate affects the food system and the food system also impacts our climate. So this occurs through a number of different ways. Um, but so the way some ways that our climate can affect our food system is, of course, food availability. 
right? So food production, potential food scarcity, water availability, um, bioavailability, um, the health of ecosystems, um, crop failure resultant from extreme weather events. These are just a few of the ways that we know that climate can have a, an impact on our food system. So something that we always have to ask ourselves is, you know, how concerned do we need to be about extreme weather events when it comes to the global food supply? And we know that there are, of course, redundancies that exist globally so that if some major event occurs somewhere, there are other ways of getting food to those places, right? So this could be emergency food relief, but what happens in the event that there are multiple, <laughs> multiple um, extreme weather events, and there are multiple food hubs that are knocked out. So I usually take a breath at this point, <laughs> reel it back in. Um, and I think there is a new report that was just published that actually examined this exact question. So I can send that report to you after if we want to share that as a resource. But those are the questions and things that we look at. We're talking about how climate impacts the food system. But the food system can also impact the climate. And one of the you know, top tier ways that we discuss that and look at that is through fossil fuel burn, of course. So that could come in the form of transportation, um, energy for food manufacturing, even refrigeration. So if we're thinking about um, you know, the carbon footprint or the fossil fuel burn involved in transporting a case of bananas overseas versus you know, a shipment of fish, that shipment of fish is going to be significantly more resource intensive strictly because of, you know, the refrigeration that's involved in transporting that fish. Um, so that's, those are some of the things. Also nitrogen fertilizer production is a very resource intensive process. And then sort of second tier, we look at methane production from beef. I think there was a very long time where we thought that methane production from cattle was a much bigger um, issue than we know it to be now. I think we do know it's still it's still a variable that we need to account for, um, but we can do so without um, dismissing that really these other fossil fuel burn issues are kind of the top tier issues that we care about there. Yeah, cool. And then following pretty directly on from that, what exactly is like a planetary health diet? I love this question. So the planetary health diet is actually an eating pattern that was first posited in the Eat Lancet report, I believe in 2016. Um, so this is a collaboration among some of the leading um, epidemiology researchers, physicians, and climate scientists, where they sought to answer the question, what is the diet that is the most supportive of human health and environmental health? And the answer that they found was just it, painfully simple in some ways, <laughs> which is that a diet that is healthy for humans is also healthy for the environment. And that is a diet that emphasizes uh, dark leafy greens, nuts and seeds, plant oils, um, diversity on your plate, vegetables, berries, and then treats animal products as a garnish rather than as a main event or like in America, like a cowboy steak that's the size of my face. 
<laughs> um, so that is what the planetary health diet is in a nutshell. And what it really is, is essentially a balanced, it's a balanced plate. It, um, incorporates lots of colors, lots of variety, and it also tries to take into consideration as much as possible, like where you're getting your food from. So if you can purchase locally, um, do that, but there are pieces to this to me that also need to be considered with respect to like accessibility. Yeah. So I guess that again, relates to the next question I had. Um, and you sort of touched on it a little bit before in your whole 10 year journey. Um, but is this kind of diet or approach to food really accessible and feasible for everyone? And if it's not, then what are some of the key avenues for making it possible? Yeah, one of the things that I did uh, really appreciate that they highlight in the report is that um, this diet that's healthiest for both people and the planet does somewhat vary by geography and cultural practice. So in the West, in the US, um, the intake of meat is, is disproportionately high compared to what the um, health recommendation would be. And I think in the case of red meat or beef, it's eight times higher on average than the daily recommended intake. So that's something that we need to grapple with. But if you're looking in other communities around the world, there where they're really not eating a ton of meat on a regular basis, there might actually be some health improvements from incorporating slightly more animal products into the diet without having an environmental impact because those regions are really not the regions that we're concerned about in terms of having this negative climate impact. It's really these large industrialized countries like the US um, that are heavily dependent on fossil fuel industry and um, large-scale large scale farming, CAFOs, where we see we have a lot more of the concern. And there's also some, you know, something to be said as well about you know, the involvement of the government in promoting or um, how's the best way to say this? Not necessarily promoting red meat intake, but sort of promoting red meat intake or maybe just abstaining from saying that there should be somewhat of a reduction in red meat intake on a dietary guidelines level. Yeah, I think it's definitely important for uh, governments and as obviously, you know, policy to actually sort of enforce some of these recommendations to a degree, isn't it? Right. And I think too, I mean, just the the question that you asked, though, does bring to mind that the first question that we should be asking as people who are interested in creating change in the food system, um, whether that be through direct patient care or through policy or through other means, is the economic question. Is this accessible? Is this something that um, is going to be health promoting and sustainable in communities everywhere. And that should be the question that is driving the policy changes that promote a more sustainable and equitably sustainable food system. Yeah, definitely. It's sort of a bit of a bottom up and top down approach to the issue right. really, isn't it? Because uh, right. you mentioned, you know, urban farming and community gardens, and I'm like a massive fan of community gardens. So I'm actually That's trying awesome. to get one built right now in my local area. Oh, so, so cool. yeah. So. Like, that's amazing. That's, that's local change. That's beautiful. Yeah. 
But, I mean, at the same time, then it'd be great if, yeah, more top-down sort of government policy changes were, like, supporting that as equally as the people obviously want it. <laughs> right, exactly. And it's it's both happening at the same time and at every level, really, that is going to get us to our goals in time. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And sort of on that, again, <laughs> what is yeah. the biggest challenge that you see in achieving your goals as a planetary health collective in moving society towards a more sustainable and healthy way of living and mitigating the impacts of climate change. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> My, I shouldn't be laughing, but it's like, it's, um, it's clear that the climate disaster is imminent, right? But over the past, at least the past three years, it's been, um, slightly more imminent disaster after more imminent disaster after more imminent disaster. And it's been really hard to keep this issue at top of mind. And I know that this is not a new issue. This is not an issue that emerged just three years ago. We've known for 30 plus years that we need to make significant changes in our um, primarily our energy industry and also in our food industry in order to have a climate resilient future for everyone. So not making an excuse for it. These are changes that have, should have been implemented on a drastic scale three plus decades ago. Recently, I think the challenge has been um, there's there is some large scale burnout in organizing communities. You know, what do we focus on right now? Right. Um, with their emergency situations that require immediate attention. So that's been a challenge for sure. Um, and then keeping in top of mind as well that the climate emergency is an emergency situation that requires our immediate attention and our immediate action. Um, so making sure that there are still some, we still have some foot in that game and that we're still involved in policy at that level. So um, in the US, for me, it's kind of, I'm always looking at policy levers that we can pull. So the Biden's Build Back Better plan um, has some really strong climate policy initiatives written into that bill. It has not been passed formally yet, but that's something that is an actual tangible thing to rally around. So for me, it's, it's twofold, right? Like it's the burnout piece and the reminding ourselves that we have this long game that we're playing in the meantime, while there are these um, more, these emergent issues that we're living with right now um, that we also need to face. The other part of it too, is that I do strongly believe that I strongly believe in people power and in civic engagement. And so getting people involved in something that they believe in, in a space where they feel safe asking questions, where they can actually become involved in the political process or leverage their unique skills and passions. If they're an artist, how can we get you involved as an artist? If you're a musician, how can we get you involved as a musician? You know, everybody needs to be in the fold on this fight for us to succeed. Um, and to not just have a climate resilient future, but to have a restorative and environmentally socially restorative future ahead of us. So that's kind of another reason that we created the Planetary Health Collective. We just want that space to exist. We want people to know about it. We want to encourage people to ask questions that they might otherwise feel nervous to ask. And for people who are like, oh, I really want to get involved. I want to do something that might actually make a difference. Sometimes that answer is learning how to call your representatives, 
or, you know, getting involved with a group that's scheduling lobbying meetings with your representatives and you're there and you get to tell your personal story. Um, so that's a step that people can take. And another one that I really like, um, I'm totally going off track at this point, but <laughs> hope that's cool. <laughs> no, all good. Yeah, go for it. Um, it's really, yeah, go ahead. Um, it's really interesting what you're saying about um, that actually being able to encourage people to advocate for certain policies and stuff that are really relevant because that's obviously super important. I know it seems like sometimes that, you know, people aren't being listened to, but it does work when, as you say, with people power, like the masses when they're asking for it. And so I think that maybe this isn't the biggest challenge, but it's a really important one of just normalising activism. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. And that was such a more sophisticated way of saying it. <laughs> That's actually one of Reese's um, phrases. So I'll have to give credit to him for that. That's something he's really big on is normalizing activism. Like it shouldn't be something strange or uncomfortable for people to go to their representatives when that's supposed to be the whole point of them, right? <laughs> is to listen Absolutely. to you. One of my favorite things to say is that your representatives work for you. So if you are nervous, remember they are your employee. <laughs> You're paying for their salary. Um, and there are certain, you know, there are certain things that you can learn from other organizers and activists, strategies that you can use during those calls or lobby calls, lobby meetings. Um, but the most powerful thing, in my opinion, that you can do is really nail down your story of self. What is it that draws you to this issue? Why do you personally care about it? Because people listen to stories, right? They want to know about you and why it is that you care about this. And without relying on like platitudes of climate change is really scary, which obviously it's very scary, but why? Why is it personally felt by you and help another person personally feel it as well? And that is the key to getting in the door with your representatives. Yeah, absolutely. Very well put. And so what is just one action that you would encourage all our listeners to try and engage with or do? Oh my God. Just one. Just one. Um, all right. Okay. So this is a really practical, helpful one um, that will help you with your grocery shopping. Cause I feel like I've gone on some tirades about collective change. And those are obviously that's, that's what I believe to be the strongest lever that we can all collectively tug on to create a more sustainable future. But it, personal um, behavior and action makes a difference, of course. So everybody go and download the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch Guide. It's an app that you can download um, off of your phone. And it is a really easy way for you to make more sustainable seafood choices when you're at the grocery store. Because if you've even like dabbled in trying to learn about sustainable seafood, you're probably immediately overwhelmed by it and like threw your phone out the window, maybe into the ocean. Um, so <laughs> instead of being overwhelmed, this is a really valuable tool. It'll help you try to, you know, make the right choices while still getting in some good, um, some good healthy seafood. Awesome. Sounds cool. We'll pop that into the uh, show notes afterwards so everyone can check that out. And lastly, what's the best way for listeners to follow you and the work you're doing with Planetary Health Collective and 
do you have any cool upcoming events or anything that they should stay tuned for? Wow. Yes. So um, you can check out our website, www.planetaryhealthcollective.org. You can also follow us on Instagram at Planetary Health Collective. Um, join our email list because we have a sustainable food jobs board. We send out written new articles that we're putting out on a weekly basis through the Planetary Health Collective um, website. Uh, all kinds of really valuable resources that we pull from our global community and send that out um, every two weeks. So get on an email list. And then also currently we have a um, series called the Sustainability in Food and Nutrition Careers panel series where we have three um, professionals who have found a way to integrate sustainability into their work in food and nutrition. No two people's paths are alike. And they are all so inspiring to our community because they show us that you can do this. Um, and they connect us with opportunities to do exactly this kind of work. So that's been a really expansive opportunity for our community members. We have an event coming up next Tuesday um, and we'll be running them through the spring. And then this is the first announcement of this that's going out there. We will be launching a brand new series in the summer called Cooking for the Climate, where we will have a guest come on and we'll be featuring a specific ingredient and we'll be having a conversation while we prepare a recipe together using that ingredient um, about the sustainability of that ingredient. What are the environmental considerations, the cultural sensitivity considerations, the history, the anthropology of this ingredient? We'll have a really in-depth intersectional conversation and then get to enjoy some really tasty bites at the end of it all. So um, the best way to find or stay in tune about that is to just join our email list and you'll be on the first you know, group of people who can register for that new event series this summer. Awesome. I'll definitely be signing up to that. So <laughs> hopefully yeah, some of our listeners there. join too. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome. We can't wait to see y'all there. It will be very affordable. Um, we want to make sure that people can access it. And this has been a real pleasure. Thanks you so much for having me on. Yeah, thank you so much for being on Earth Allies today and sharing your insight. Like really, really appreciated. It's been really great. Likewise, it's been a total joy for me. Um, and I have a feeling we'll be doing more of this. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Really great talking with you. Likewise. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. Please follow us on our socials at Earthly Education and join the conversation. If you learned something from this episode or any of our other content, please consider becoming a regular donor through our Patreon or with a single donation via our website or GoFundMe. If this isn't an option for you, please just share and rate this episode so that we can increase our reach. Thanks again.